would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John 17. And I want to read in your hearing, verse 6 to verse 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake... I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. There's often a complaint that you hear among Christians, either overtly spoken or sometimes just thought. The prayer is something that gets boring. It can get deadly dull because... What's new to say to God that we haven't already said dozens of times before? And I think that if that's what we do when we pray, just say the same things that we said yesterday and the day before and the day before that, indeed, we can be in a rut. We can be in a very deadly dull place in our prayer lives. But that's not necessary that we should have that sense of the sameness of prayer. Because we have guides for us in God's word that really can make, if we take them seriously, prayer to be an endless reservoir of life and of joy and of satisfaction. Just consider our Lord's teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Just consider the realities that that model prayer sets forth. To think about all the things that relate to the name of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God, all the concerns about our daily bread, our debts, our sins, our temptations. You just consult some of the commentaries on the Lord's Prayer. 
And a lot of them are just full and helpful. Uh, some of the catechisms, like the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism, or the Heidelberg Catechism, when they ask the question, what does the, you know, this petition mean, and how, how is it to be prayed? Um, just rich instruction that's given. You know, Luther wrote a commentary on the Lord's Prayer that wasn't for scholars, it wasn't for his theological students, it was written for his barber. It's written for his barber. His barber had that problem of the sameness of prayer. And he wanted a little manual on the subject of prayer. And Luther wrote one for his barber. And if the barber got benefit from it, you and I probably could get benefit from reading such a thing. But there's so much that we have in the scriptures themselves. Not only instruction about prayer, but also models of prayer itself. The prayers of Paul, the prayers of the Psalms. But perhaps above all of these, of interest to us as God's people should be the instruction that Jesus himself gives by example in this prayer that takes up the entirety of the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. Now while there's things that are here that are related to Jesus as the Son of God, things that have to do with him especially and not to us, There's much that's here that's common to prayer concerns that you and I have as God's people. And Jesus' petitions in many ways should be frequently found upon our own lips, in our own prayers before the Lord. And I think if we use this as a prayer, as a model prayer, it may just revolutionize your prayer life. Some of the same old, same old that may you be experiencing in the week that's past in the week that's to come, if you just took the very things Jesus prayed for his disciples with respect to and say, Lord, this is something I need. I need to be kept. I need to be strengthened. I need to be unified with other believers. I need to be sanctified by your word, your word being truth. And take those things upon your own lips into the presence of God. Um, I don't think that that's uninteresting prayer that's vital concerns that we should be pouring our hearts out before the throne of grace with respect to these matters up to now we've looked at this prayer from a number of angles I've given you something of an outline of the body of the prayer it sees Jesus first as praying for himself particularly that he would be glorified with the glory he had with the Father from the foundation of the world and um, now we're going to begin this morning to look at the second part of the prayer, which is Jesus praying for his immediate followers. And nobody's to look at the title of the message in the bulletin, because I'm going to ask the question, who are the people that Jesus is praying for? Again, it's immediate followers, but to what extent are these immediate followers in his view as he prays this prayer? If you look at the title of the message, you know where I'm going to end up. But I want to just leave it blank in your thinking for now. I want to be, first of all, looking with you at the people this prayer is being prayed for. And then I want to say something about the petitions. Actually, I want to say something else. I want to say how this prayer for these people, that he's in his view, relates to the prayer he prayed for his glory. 
There's a relationship between the two. Okay? So we want to look at the people he prays for. Then we will want to look at the relationship of what he prays for them and his own prayer for himself. His own prayer for his own glory. And that uh, is something that fits in with this prayer for them. And then finally, we want to look at some of the petitions that Jesus prayed for these persons regarding. First of all, let's get the persons in view. Let's get the people that Jesus is praying for. I think we can say, first of all, who he's not praying for. Because he tells us, he says to us in verse 9, I am not praying for the world. Now that's not because Jesus doesn't care about the world. In fact, I think he so deeply cares about the world that he's praying for these people in particular. These people whom God, he says, gave me out of the world, in verse 6. Now, in verse 11, he says, he speaks of himself as no longer being in the world. I'm not praying for the world. I'm no longer in the world. But uh, these people you have given me out of the world. Um, But yet in verse 13, he says, I'm speaking these things while in the world. Well, is he in the world or is he not in the world? It seems confusing. Physically, our Lord is still in the world. But the fact is, he's about to depart out of the world to the Father. And in fact, at this point in his public ministry, there is no world in his view. There's only the disciples. There's only the upper room. He's turned away from his ministry to the world to minister to his disciples on the threshold of his leaving the world. He's leaving the world. These are his farewell words to them. These, these, this is his farewell prayer for them. And in contrast to his leaving the world, not being any longer in the world, active in ministry to the world, these disciples for whom he prays are in the world and their future is the world and ministry to the world. These are the ones that he's leaving behind to carry on the work that the Father had given him to do. In other words, these ones whom he's going to send out to bring the gospel to the nations. Again, he says at the end of this section, as you sent me into the world, in verse 18, so I have sent them into the world. Chapter 20, he's going to say, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And he's going to breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit, so that they will be equipped to do the work the Father had given them to do. Jesus' concerns are for these people in particular, because these are the people that the Father called out of the world, gave them to Jesus, that they might be his apostles. It's with respect to this apostolic band present in the upper room that Jesus is teaching and that Jesus is praying for the future of his kingdom. The future of his work in the world, in a real sense, hangs upon their shoulders. Now they're described as those whom the Father gave me out of the world. He says, yours they were. And you gave them to me. What does the does that mean? Yours they were, and you gave them to me. In what sense were they the fathers? In what sense were they given to Jesus, having been given out from the world? Well, for many of us, the answer has always seemed to be clear. We always considered these words, at least I did, in terms of the eternal decree of election. 
These people were elected in Christ from the foundation of the world, and now they're given to Christ to lay down his life. Uh, for, for, uh, um, I'm sorry, given to Christ so that he might lay down his life for them. After all, Jesus had spoken of his existence with the Father before the world existed. Perhaps then these persons belonged to the Father in pre-temporal decree. And now they're given to Jesus in eternity. And now Jesus has come um, to die for them. It's all part of an eternal plan, in other words. That sounds tempting. That seems like a good theologically sound explanation. I just don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think rather, the way in which these people belong to the Father is because they were part of the nation of Israel that was the possession of the God of Israel. They were the redeemed of the Lord, being taken out of Egyptian bondage and being brought as on eagle's wings to the God of Israel to be a covenant people. They belonged to the Father by reason of His redemptive power, bringing Israel into union with Himself in covenant love and covenant commitment. They were yours. Because they were the people of Israel that God brought unto Himself. But yet, what happened to the mass of the people of Israel? Well, with reference to the God of Israel, they rejected Him when He became, when he became enfleshed. The enfleshment of Israel's God brought about the abandonment of Israel's God when Israel's God comes to them. Again, go back to the opening of the John's Gospel in the prologue. And we find in the words of verse 11 this very scenario that I'm trying to spell out to you. And here's what's happening. Verse 11 says, He that is this eternal word that was with God and that was God, this one who's the true light, that gives light to everyone that's come into the world. In verse 11, he came to his own. That is his own people. His own nation. The people of Israel. And his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. They ruled him out of court. They did not bow the knee to him. They did not embrace him. They considered him a deceiver, a false messiah. But... To all who did receive him, again, not the majority of the nation, but a remnant people, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And they were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were yours. You gave them to me, through the power of a new birth. And through the power of a new birth, they came to receive me. They came to follow me. This is the part of Israel that God, that supplied this remnant people of the nation of Israel, that old covenant people, and now with the coming of Jesus, by the will of the Father, through the power of the new birth, a new Israel begins. A new creation of God begins. A new covenant people of God begins. These apostles become the foundation of the new temple. Remember, Paul says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. 
These are the first fruits of the gospel harvest that go out to bring in the harvest. These are the laborers who go forth in the power of the Spirit to bring the New Testament church into existence and into being. These are the ones whom Jesus, in the post-resurrection appearance in chapter 20, says, As the Father sent me, so send I you. And he breathes upon them the Holy Spirit. I believe it's the apostles that are in the view of Jesus praying for these things. That they would be kept. That they would be preserved. That they would be unified. That they would be sanctified. That they would be strengthened. That they would function in the power of the Spirit to bring glory to the name of Jesus and to bring salvation to a lost and a needy world. That's the persons that Jesus says, I've manifested your name to. Also in the words of verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, they have kept your word. He's talking about people right before him. People in the upper room. The people whom he had been ministering to. Whom he had given the word of God to. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words you gave me. They've received them. They've come to know in truth. I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. Again, he's already gone over this with them. They believe that God sent him. They didn't understand yet he's going back to the Father by way of the cross. But they did believe he came from God. They did believe the Father sent him. And that word that Jesus spoke, they received. And they believed that everything he said was coming from God. And Jesus says, I'm praying for them. These disciples, I'm praying for them. I mean, think of it. Everything Jesus says about these apostles, these ones whom he would send out into the world, is very encouraging. In fact, you would think, here's a group of people, if any group ever existed, that would be in excellent spiritual condition. They'd received his word, they believed he came from the Father, They believed in Yahweh, Israel's God, as the only true God. They believed in Jesus Christ, whom he had sent. They were possessors of everlasting life. They believed that he's the Christ, the Son of God, who has the words of eternal life. And yet Jesus says, I'm praying for them. Wait a minute, Jesus. Why are you praying for them and not for the world? Doesn't the world need prayer? These disciples seem like they're all together wonderful spiritual condition why do they need prayer I think sometimes we think that we think that people in excellent spiritual condition don't need our prayers sometimes we think we don't need prayer until we get into a really bad fix and then we run to prayer but it's not just out of our weakness that we need prayer we need to be rescued from our own pride our own selves our own exalted sense that we're okay when maybe we're not You think you stand, take heed, lest you fall, we're told in Scripture. We need prayer because we are weak and we are fickle and we are dependent upon God for all that is good. And we have nothing but what we've received and we need to be upheld and strengthened. We need to be made joyful and we need to be satisfied in the things of our God. And the only way these things come about in our lives is prayer. 
We need to be praying for ourselves, even in times of seeming spiritual strength. It's always interesting to read Paul's letters and how Paul prayed for the churches. And again, he didn't pray for them because he says, I see you people in Ephesus, you've got some real problems. And I'm driven to prayer in the light of those problems because you need to fix those things. No, here's what he says. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Seems pretty good. The people at Ephesus are doing okay. They have faith in the Lord Jesus, love toward all the saints. So move on. Pray for some other people that are in a really bad spiritual condition. That's not what Paul says. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. That's appropriate to give thanks for them. But then remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling and know these other things in terms of spiritual insight and spiritual understanding. We're the needy ones, always. We need prayer. We need to be praying for ourselves and to be praying for others. Not just the lost ones of this world. But you know, in a real sense, the lost ones of this world will never become believers if the people of God are not upheld and strengthened and live out our faith in the way that Jesus prays for these disciples. Again, what does he pray for? He prays that they would be kept. They wouldn't be like Judas, the son of perdition. He's the one who Jesus lost. He was one of the apostles that did not remain faithful. Satan entered him. He went out to betray Jesus. But he prays that these would not have that experience. They would be kept. Where would the church have been if the prayer of Jesus for their preservation was not heard and answered? If they had gone the way of Judas, where would the church be? There would be no church. There will be no apostolic foundation to the church. It's only the fact that they were kept that you have apostolic ministry that goes out into the world and plants the church. He prays that they would be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. That they would be set apart in the service of God in the light of God's word. What if these were people that were not set apart in such a way? What if they simply went about the Roman world just preaching their own ideas, their own insights, their own understanding? And the word of God's truth was not central to everything that they said. Think the church ever gets into that mindset where we're preaching our own things, our own ideas, our own opinions, our own beliefs? It's only that Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the way of your truth. The truth would be central to all of their understandings, to all of their proclamations, to the way in which they established the church in the world. So the church would be founded upon a biblical foundation. He prays that they would be unified. And then it's interesting, in verse 24 he says, Father, I desire also... I'm sorry, that's... Another, another point. But uh, earlier on he says, verse 23, just one before it. He prays that I and them, you and me, 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Again, Jesus is not praying for the world, but he is praying for the world. In praying for these apostles and their unity, he's praying for the very thing that will establish before the world the legitimacy of the Christian gospel. The people of the world look at 40,000 Christian denominations and they say, these people can't even agree among themselves what reality is. Look at how they just splinter. Start their own groups. Go off in their own ways. But you know, in the early church, the church was unified. The church had come to an understanding of apostolic authority. And they lived under the rule of the apostolic gospel and the apostolic truth. Imagine if we returned to that. Not everybody going around parroting our own notions and our own ideas. Well, again, our prayer should be to that very end. That we would know greater measures of unity. Not be divisive, not be sectarian, not be splitting off into every group with multiple opinions where we can't agree on anything at all. How is the world going to be bettered by a group of people that can't get on with one another when they can't get on with one another? It's the unity of the church that is the validating argument that Christ has been sent into the world. These people wouldn't be the way they are if Jesus had not come, if Jesus had not died and risen, if Jesus had not equipped them and empowered them by his Spirit. So everything Jesus is praying for, for these disciples, is really a prayer that the world would be impacted by the early church as they went out to do the work that they were committed to do. Don't neglect your brothers and sisters in your prayers. Don't just say, well, I need to pray for the lost. Because the lost will not be persuaded if the church fails in its mission. If the church fails to be what we're called upon to be. We need to pray for strong prayers for strong believers. This we all can always grow. And we're all subject to the dangers of a fallen world. And it's the believers, strong believers, who will go with the message of the gospel into the world to convict the world. The world won't be persuaded by a weak, divided, compromised, willful, self-interested church. And so Jesus directs his prayers to the Father with respect to these who would be his representatives he would send into the world. These ones in whom the great project of the building of the church would be vested in. These are the ones who get the major part of the attention in this prayer. But then there's a connection between what he prays for them and what he prayed for himself. Because not only does the credibility of the gospel and the argument for the reality of the gospel depend upon a united, sanctified, preserved and kept people, but also his glory. 
hangs in the balance as well. Again, remember, he prayed, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. But then the glory of the Son is not only to be seen in the glory He will be restored to in the presence of His Father, but there's also His glory in the world that's to be thought about and considered. And in verse 10, Jesus connects His prayer for His own glory and the mission that He's given to His people with regard to their work and His glory that hangs also in the balance. All are mine, he said. Oh, I'm sorry. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world. My work is done in the world. But they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, on their behalf. Why? Because in a real sense... My glory will be revealed in and through them to the world. Because they're going to be my emissaries to bring the message of my grace and salvation to this lost and needy world. Father, keep them. While I was in the world and with them, I kept them. I was there to protect them. I was there to preserve them. Now I'm going out of the world and I'm asking, Lord, that those whom you have given me, you protect, you guard them, you keep them, you keep them faithful, you keep them united, you keep them sanctified in the truth, you keep them joyful and believing and persevering. Because in a real sense, the glory of the name of Jesus is dependent upon his people, his body who exists in the world to represent him, who exists in the world to worship him and to declare his name. So there's a connection between Jesus' prayer for his own glory and his prayer for his people that he might be glorified in and through them. But then there is the petitions that our Lord prays for them. And again, I mentioned that they were basically four in number. And he prays that they would be kept, that they would be protected, that they would be preserved. He prays that they would be unified. He prays that they would be sanctified in the truth, and he prays that they would be strengthened. And the matter of the strengthening of these disciples, I think, is bound up in the fact that he says, I've spoken these words that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. The pathway of joy is a pathway of spiritual strength. It is a joyful people that are strong in the things of the gospel, that are strong in the things of the Lord. It's not the people that moan and groan about their imperfections and their weaknesses and their sins. Remember what happened in the book of Ezra when the people, I'm sorry, the book of Nehemiah, when Ezra read the law and the people were gripped with the reality of their own wretchedness and sinfulness and their failures and the way they've dishonored God by breaking the law and they're gripped with their, in their hearts and they're filled with mourning. And the word that came from Nehemiah was to cease their mourning. 
This is a time to mourn, but hey, you got to lift yourself up from a, from a, the grief of your own wretchedness and recognize the answer is not to be found in here. There's no good in you. You're not going to find any solution by pouring over your heart. Assume what you're going to find in your heart is not is is, is not anything that's going to be an answer to the problem of your sinnerhood. You got to look outside of yourself to the only one who can save. The only one who can deliver. The only one who can bring strength and blessing. Hence the joy of the Lord is your strength. I've given them my joy, Jesus says. That we should be a people who predominantly live our lives in this world. Not with a glum, morose, hung, chin hung down spirit. But we know who we believe. We know the greatness of His grace and of His love. We know the reality of our forgiveness. We know the good that the gospel has brought. We'd be a people that have His joy fulfilled in ourselves. We praise that they would be kept. And we might think that the keeping of the people of God is something that's a promised reality. I mean, isn't that true? That uh, Jesus keeps his people. He guards the ways of his saints. The Psalms declare that. The promises are given. He who began a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of the Lord Jesus. And yet Jesus still prays for the keeping of God's people. I know people that won't pray a promise because they would say, God said it, it's true, it's done, it's completed, and if you pray for it, you don't believe it. See, to pray for something that God has promised is to say, you don't believe it's real. But that's not true. I don't know where that notion came from. I shouldn't pray that God would cleanse my heart from my sins because God's already done it. The gospel declares it. It's a reality. And scripture tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it must be a truth that we need to be asking for forgiveness for our sins, even though we're forgiven. We call are called upon to pray the promises, to plead them for ourselves. Jesus pleaded them for us. He doesn't just say, well, Lord, you're, you're there to keep them. They're your elect. You're pledged to them to preserve them, to bring them into your presence with everlasting joy. Now, God knows he's able to keep his people. And he's the only hope of his people. But yet Jesus prays that they would be kept. And we too are to pray that we, are, we will be kept. I grant you, only God can keep us. Only God can protect us. Only God can preserve us in the midst of a world of great danger. Of a world that's ever looking to squeeze us into its own way of thinking. The counsel of the ungodly abounding in every direction. We're not immune to it. We hear it. It influences us. You have the devil that goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Though we know his ways and we know his wiles, it impacts us, it influences us. That's because we have within our own hearts another problem. We have a betrayer within our own hearts, our own flesh. 
If it was just a problem of the world and of the devil, we might be able to not be impacted if there was not a betrayer within our own hearts, in our own flesh. And you see, the answer is not to just look within. Again, the answer is to look to Him who is able to keep us from falling. To be praying for His preservation. Lord, keep us. Work in us all that is good and pleasing in your sight that we would persevere in the pathway of faith and of faithfulness. That's not a question of doubt. That's, a, that's, a, that's an expression of faith. I believe God alone can keep me. God alone can preserve me. And hence I don't look within to myself. I look to Him. Not just for a long ago pledged promise, but for a present influence of His grace and Spirit today, now. In this situation I'm passing through, in this set of circumstances I'm going through, facing these temptations that are present today, now, in my life. Jesus prayed in such ways for His own, and we need to be praying, each of us for ourselves and for others, in similar ways. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at these other matters that Jesus prayed for, particularly the unity of his people and the sanctification of his people. But as we do conclude um, this morning, take to heart the example that that we find in Jesus in the prayers that he prayed. It brings before our minds the reality of the great issues we face and many times we're just not aware of. Keep them from the evil one. There is an evil one that we need to combat. Protect them from this world out of which you have called them and you've given them to me. That they would not go back into the world. That they would not follow in the path of Judas, son of perdition, but be the sons and daughters of grace and of glory. Jesus spoke a parable once to those who weary and faint in their hearts it was a parable about a a woman who had a great need that she kept bringing before a judge who wouldn't hear of her but she persisted and sought him over and over and over again so wherever that man went that woman was found Finally, he said, though I'm not a righteous judge, though I don't fear God, nor do I respect men, but because this widow keeps bothering me, I will avenge her and give her the things that she requests. And that's a parable to the end that we would not lose heart, particularly in the place of prayer. We would always be a people who would pray. 
May God keep us bringing our cries before the judge, who's not an angry judge and or unjust judge, but he's the just king of heaven with the confidence that what we plead for in his presence, it is his desire to give. It is his delight to bestow. Let's come to him with confidence. Let's come to him with persevering faith, calling upon his name to protect, to preserve, to keep, to strengthen, and to bring us ultimately into his own eternal presence with everlasting joy. Let's pray together. Father, we do confess we are often prone to spiritual fainting fits. We're often prone to losing heart in prayer. We're often prone to just become weary in well-doing. We pray for grace to be renewed in the inner man, in the inner life. We pray for grace to look to the prayer examples we find in Scripture, particularly this prayer of our Lord Jesus. How desperately needy these disciples were, these great men of old were, of the prayers of the Savior. And we who are in no way they're comp- comparable to them in, 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 in understanding and in holiness, how much more we need to be in prayer continually for your preserving grace, for your power to keep us. Again, we have enemies that are around us and enemies that are within us. We call upon your name that you would protect and preserve. You would strengthen and secure us for that eternal glory that you have purposed for us as your children. We ask you to hear our prayers, to look upon us with your favor, and to help us to be a people that persevere in the pathway, not only of faith and of faithfulness, but of prayer, of petitions, and of intercessions for others, as we'd come and we'd ask for these mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.